I'm very thankful this morning to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. Many of us who have read the Bible before will recognize John chapter 3, especially verse 16, but we'll begin reading at verse 11 and then read through verse 21. This is really the second half of a passage that you heard if you were here a week ago where a man comes to Jesus, his name is Nicodemus, and he has a question for Jesus. And the question is about being born again. And Jesus answered that question, and now what we read in verse 11 is a follow-up to the answer that Jesus provides Nicodemus. Please give your attention to the Word of God as I read it. Jesus says, beginning at verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is his word. May he bless it this morning. I hardly need to tell you in introduction to this sermon that verse 16 of our chapter is easily the best known verse in the Bible. Even if you would not call yourself a Christian when I say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, you think to yourself, I've heard that somewhere. But here's what I want you to see about that verse. In fact, verses 16, 17, and 18 within this passage as a whole. In fact, I'm going to focus on those three verses because I want you to see within the context of this passage, Jesus is not merely muttering nice words for us to mull over in connection with Christianity. No, what Jesus is doing is something more significant, far more significant, giving us a challenge that I think especially plays well in the culture in which we live. And by culture, I'm not talking merely about the United States as a whole or Western culture. I'm speaking about West Michigan culture where there can be a lot of perception about the trappings of religion. Jesus in this passage is calling us to go beyond the surface of religion to the core of Christianity. And he does that in three contrasts. In fact, as you're listening to me and you think, here's Jesus calling to this religious man to go beyond sort of the trappings of religiosity to the core of Christianity, I want you to hear this not only through the ears of Nicodemus, I want you to hear it 
through the ears that God has given you as well. Three contrasts. The first contrast is this, each one coming from one of these three verses I said I would focus on. The first is in verse 16. And it's a contrast that I would call the inside-outside contrast. And what I'm trying to do in interpreting this verse for you is to show you that what Jesus is talking about applies to you. This is not merely for Nicodemus or other people, but it is for you. It is really foundational to the question Jesus is going to ask Nicodemus and the question that I'm going to ask you. In order to understand this inside-outside contrast, you have to remember, or maybe I can just explain to you what happens in the previous verses of chapter 3. This man Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and he has a question. He's wondering about new life. He's probably heard Jesus explain this. It was unusual to him. It wasn't something the other rabbis talked about. And now Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he wants Jesus to explain to him what this new life is about. Please understand from Nicodemus's perspective that he would have assumed naturally that this new life belonged to the Jews. This was good news for them. This assumption that the good news was for Jews went back many, many, many years all the way back into the Old Testament, and that for the good news to be extended beyond the Jews to Gentiles to whoever heard the good news would have seemed, seemed very unlikely to Nicodemus. But I want to show you this is exactly the point that Jesus is making. And I want to show you that not only from this passage, but from two other places in the Gospels as well. Two places that come from Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, the gospel writer is explaining to us something that Jesus does when he makes his public appearance in his hometown. He is asked to read the scroll on the Sabbath, and he reads from Isaiah. And in Luke 4, when he finishes reading from that scroll, he makes a very brief application of that passage to the people who are sitting there, all Jews. In the passage he read from Isaiah, there is blessing, the writer says, for the Israelites, and there's also condemnation for the Gentiles. But when Jesus reads and explains that passage, he not only leaves off the condemnation for the Gentiles, he also implies there's condemnation for the Israelites who do not believe. Do you remember how angry the Jews were? It says they took him out to the edge of a cliff outside of town and wanted to throw him off. They were so angry that condemnation would not be given to the Gentiles, but instead it might come to them. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus doubles down by saying immediately after that event that in another Old Testament story, Elijah the prophet was commanded by God in the middle of a famine where no one had any food to leave the nation of Israel and to go to the corrupt and pagan country of Sidon to help a widow in that land. Bring her food, God said. He was a Gentile. Someone that Nicodemus would assume, would have assumed was not within those who could be blessed by God. And then Jesus not only doubles down in Luke 4, he triples down, if that is a phrase I can use, 
to say in the days of Elisha there were many lepers in Israel, but the prophet cleansed Naaman the Syrian, not only a Gentile, but an enemy of Israel. God cleansed him. The assumption the Israelites had that God only cared for the Israelites He only cares about the insiders, those who've been religious for a long time, that these words would only apply to those who've been in church for a generation or perhaps two or three, in Luke chapter 4 is proved wrong, in fact, dead wrong. And in our passage, in verse 15, we read at the very end of verse 15 that Jesus corrects that wrong assumption by making his own point about the Israelites wandering around in the desert. And God sends venomous snakes among the Israelites as they're wandering. Wandering, I should say. And they are saved when Moses places before them a pre-Christ on a cross. They look to the deliverer and they are saved. Now here's the question. Who's eligible to look at the cross and be saved? Is it only those who look good, talk right, and already already are religiously inclined? Nicodemus would have come to this conversation assuming if you're not an Israelite, an insider, these words could not apply to you. Look at the very end of verse 15. Jesus says in one of the most stunning words Nicodemus could have heard, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever. This is not intended for a narrowly select group who happen to be in the right position in terms of the religious bent. No, Jesus says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he carries that forward in verse 16, where in the famous words that many of us know, he says, for God so loved the world. Now, what is this world? It is true that God made the world, but in the context of this passage, Jesus intends something more specific than the natural world, the creation that we enjoy so much in West Michigan. He's referring to the world outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel, what we sometimes mean when we say the world that is out there. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That is not just the Israelites, but those who are outside of the Israelites, those who didn't fit into Nicodemus' scheme of who could belong to the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world. This is a wonderful truth to remember. God's grace goes way beyond those whom we might expect to be saved. Be honest. I don't think that I would be one that God would naturally save. Be honest with your own heart. Look at where you have been. Look at who you are. Look at the way in which God has brought you through all kinds of twists and turns in your life, many of your own corrupt making. And yet God has set his affection on you. You are not an outsider There is no insider-outsider distinction in John chapter 3. There's none of this, some of us belong and others are trying to make their way in. That is contrary to the nature of the gospel. 
In fact, not only is it contrary to Luke 4 and John chapter 3, but much of the New Testament into Paul's writings are all about breaking down the separation between the insiders, the Jews, and the outsiders, the Gentiles. If I can just put it this way, how do you know that the gospel is clearly seen in a community of believers that is the kingdom of God? And the outsider-insider reality that it is broken down, that kingdom of God reality, there is no insider-outsider. There's no naturally religious. There's no one whom God looks at and says, this one appeals to me more than that one because of how good they are. In the scriptures, that's contrary to the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you really? Because a couple of days ago, somebody came to my office. I just happened to be here. Someone I doubt I'll ever see again. I was here early in the morning before the worker showed up to work on our nearly completed project up here. He knocked on the door, bang, 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 and of course when I went to open it, I was rude. I said, the door's open. He said, I got in a fight with my girlfriend last night. She kicked me out of our hotel room. I've been wandering around, and I need to make a phone call and maybe, maybe use the bathroom. You know the first thought that went through my mind? Be careful. And this man who doesn't look that good, doesn't smell that good, this is not really who I'm looking to serve. In fact, it took me halfway home to realize that the jacket I had over the back of my chair could better have been given to him than used by me because I have many others at home. I drove back and by that time it was gone. And I thought to myself in anticipation of this sermon, it is one thing to intellectually affirm the fact there are no insiders, outsiders in the kingdom of Christ. It's quite another to believe it to be true. But look at the passage. It says in verse 16, For God so loved the world, including the man who seemed most unlikely to me to become a follower of Jesus Christ, for whom I responded rudely when he had sincere need. That man needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of me thinking to myself, I'm going to preach a sermon on John 3.16, For God so loved the world, I thought to myself, literally true, I need to pick up my books from my office and head home so I can write a sermon on John 3, verse 16. (laughs) That's the hired of irony, at least in a pastor's life. And I want to be even more specific than that. If you're here this morning or you're listening over our YouTube stream, this is meant to be personal. That is, not only is it meant for Nicodemus to believe, it's also for you to hear. Even if you have felt like an outsider all of your life because of whatever circumstance it is, either of your own making or what's been done to you, this passage has come to you this morning so that you can hear, as I've said, this sermon is for you. You're supposed to hear it because God so loved the world. Which means there's a second thing I want to say to you as well in verse 17. And again, since it's been a minute since we read it, I want to read to you it again. 
It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now that you're familiar with what the world means there, Jesus is speaking not only about the Israelites, but the Gentiles as well. The verse introduces a second contrast to us beyond the inside-outside contrast to now the condemnation-salvation contrast. To put it sort of this way, verse 17 introduces to us the reality that what we're talking about here this morning has ultimate consequences. This is not merely a nice lecture about John 3.16 and how you should believe some things about the most famous verses in the Bible. This is to say the call to whoever, the way that you respond has ultimate consequences. Let me explain this to you. Many of you know that for a number of years, in addition to being a pastor, I was a chaplain in a prison. And one of the questions I would ask when men came to the chapel, they would say, hey, chaplain, or sometimes they called me father or pastor or whatever, we'd really like to do a Bible study with you. How would you like to be the one to lead that Bible study? Eventually, I did a number of Bible studies, but I would always ask them this question at the beginning of a Bible study, what do you think Christianity is about? What is Christianity? The vast majority of them, as perhaps some of us would answer, Christianity is about becoming a better person. Now to be sure, Christians should be good people. But at the heart of Christianity is not, first of all, being a good person. That is an implication of Christianity. It is not at its core. It is a result... It is not its essence. I used to think when men would tell me that, that's sort of ironic since we're in prison when you give me this answer. Many of them would also assume, and I think these two things went together, that God's primary disposition toward this world to them was that God was just waiting there since they were not good people for the particular moment in which he could really hurt them. One described it to me this way, I'm just waiting for God to whack me because of how bad I have been. Some of them took the fact they were sitting in prison as a demonstration that all the evil they'd ever done had come back to haunt them. And again, there's a certain logic to that. It's true. But for many of them, I would go to John 3, verse 17, and read these words to them. For God did not send His Son into the world, that is, to you, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now, the word condemned here does not mean there is no condemnation to those who reject Jesus Christ. No, you can read before and after these verses to find that to be true. You are duly warned. But in this verse, when it says to condemn the world, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, what Jesus is saying is that it is not the intention of God to send Jesus into this world so that you would be condemned. Rather, the point of sending Jesus into this world is that you would be saved, that you would find salvation in Him, that instead of experiencing condemnation without Him, you would find salvation with Him. God's intention to you this morning, I can say with confidence as you're listening to what I'm saying, 
is that you would hear my voice and the words that I'm expressing, the truth that is found in this passage, and you would say to yourself, I want that. I want to be saved. I want to know Jesus Christ. I don't want condemnation. I want salvation. I've seen all the places I've been. I've tried so many other things. Here's where I see the grace of Jesus Christ, and I want that. I don't want loneliness. I want the companionship of His Spirit. I don't want to be trying things that always end up badly. I want to give myself to the one who's promised to care for me. Please understand how important the second contrast is. Again, one of the things that God is doing in this very moment is expressing to you, to you, what He has written in this verse. He is speaking the Word of God to you. That He did not send Jesus in this world so that at the moment at which you're hearing about Jesus Christ, you would be condemned, but rather that you would believe. It is His desire for you that you would hear and believe. It is a gospel of grace. He is moving in your heart as you listen to my voice. That you would also come to believe in Him. That you would see that what He gives to you, you do not deserve, but He gives it to you freely. And out of nothing more than His kindness. I believe that would have sounded very difficult to Nicodemus. I think he would have struggled to believe that. I suppose he would have looked into his heart and he would have said to himself, there are so many reasons why God would reject me. We don't know a great deal about Nicodemus beside what is written in this passage, but you know a great deal about your own heart, do you not? Can you not look into your heart this morning and see many reasons why God would reject you? Even if you are all dressed up very nicely, You know, God sees into the core of who we are. He knows the things that we have done. He knows the words we've spoken. He even knows the thoughts of our hearts. And yet, in this verse, Jesus says that He did not come into this world to condemn you, but that you might be saved through Him. Grab onto it. Hold it. Make it the core of your being. Some of you might be familiar with a series of videos. In fact, there's a website. It's, I don't know if it's a movement. <laughs> what makes a movement? But there's a series of video on a website. You can find them on YouTube or just go to their website. They're called I Am Second. You're familiar with those? It's a whole number of testimonies, most of them very famous people, about how God came into their life and Jesus Christ saved them. One particular one drew, drew my attention this past week. It's someone you might not know. His name is Michael Moulton. He wasn't that famous before Christ saved him. He might not be that famous now, but his story is compelling. He said in 10 years he was arrested 27 times. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, running afoul of the law time after time after time. He ended up in prison, as you might guess. It was only through... The grace of God, while he was in prison, someone gave him a Bible, and because he was one of the very few people in his pod who could read proficiently enough, 
other prisoners would come to him and ask him to read the Bible because they were bored. And the more he read, not only the more did they ask for him to read, the more he realized what he was reading was affecting his own heart until he came to tell them, this is not only the Bible I'm reading to you, I believe this to be true. He came to the realization that God in the Scriptures was not coming to him to condemn him, although there were at least 27 obvious reasons why he would. But God in the Scriptures was coming in Jesus Christ, full of the grace that was demonstrated in the cross to this man to save him. Maybe your life is not nearly as dramatic as Michael Multans was, but I also want to speak very pointedly to those of us who have quiet quit God. We've rebelled against Him just as much in our hearts as others have, but we've hidden it from others. We have maybe said to ourselves, as long as I go along with the flow As long as I appear to be a good person, as long as I'm doing the right things, nobody really knows. God knows. He knew in Nicodemus, and I hate to insult any of you in particular, but you're probably not as righteous as Nicodemus. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, God is calling you. And this morning I'm saying to you, He's calling you as well. And the condemnation-salvation contrast is meant in verse 17 to draw you to the point at which you can hear what Jesus says in verse 18. The inside-outside contrast is meant to tell you this message is for you. The condemnation-salvation contrast is meant to say, here are the stakes. And now in verse 18, the belief-unbelief contrast is meant to ask you a question. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. To Him there, the antecedent is, of course, Jesus Himself. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You notice three times Jesus says belief, because the critical question of verse 18 is the matter of belief, will you or not? It's belief, unbelief. Let me just explain to you what belief is. I'll give you a technical explanation, and then I'll give you a we're out on the street definition, and you ask me, what does it mean to believe? Here's the technical definition. In the history of our theology, of which I'm very, very thankful, we have talked about faith having three constituent parts. There's notitia, which is the knowledge of God. That is, if you're going to have faith, you have to know something. You don't have belief in something you can't know. No, God has come in the Scriptures to give you that knowledge, to tell you both who He is and who Jesus Christ is. If you're going to believe, you have to know. In the same way, if you're going to love your husband or wife, you have to know them. It doesn't mean you know them exhaustively. It doesn't mean you know everything about God or Jesus Christ. If you're waiting for that knowledge to become exhaustive before you turn to Jesus, you'll never arrive. But if you know that Jesus is the Son of God come into the world to save sinners. 
You have the knowledge necessary to believe. Notitia. A census. You hear the word assent in there, do you not? Assent is to say that not only do you know who Jesus is, but you believe that knowledge to be true. That is, it matters. You believe that this is a truth that changes and transforms. It's certainly possible to know a lot of things that do not matter in life. I'm sure I could figure out how much ground beef is going for at Meyer. Probably wouldn't change my life. Those kinds of bits of knowledge are not what we mean by what we assent to. What we assent to in the Christian faith is not only that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's come into the world to save sinners, that He's ruling from the right hand of God now. What I mean by assent is what the early Christians meant when they confessed the Apostles' Creed. These were the basic truths of the Christian faith. Every Christian afterward of any substance has affirmed, if you can say the Apostles' Creed, if you believe it to be true, you are a Christian. But the early Christians did not write the Apostles' Creed simply because they needed to have a list of things to believe. No, they wrote the Apostles' Creed. They summarized Christian faith because they lived in a culture that said, if you believe that Jesus is King, then the rulers can put you to death. You can be burned. You can be thrown to the lions. And so the Christians believe the Apostles' Creed not only with their minds, they believed it with their hearts to the points that it mattered. And Christian faith has that as a component. We believe it not only with our minds, but we believe it to be true to the degree that it matters. And the beyond, notitia and fiducia, or ascensus is fiducia. That is what we generally refer to as faith. It is the knowledge, it is the ascent, but then it is the giving yourself over entirely to that truth. And here, my friend, is the essence of faith. It goes back so far as the Old Testament where the Israelites were trying to follow God along with other things. They're condemned by the prophets time and again because it was God plus something, God plus something. That's translated into the New Testament where Paul says to the Galatians, you cannot have works of the law and Jesus as well. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is only Jesus. It is not what you bring to the table. As wonderful and as successful and as notorious as you might be, you bring nothing to the table When the grace of Christ is applied, nothing. Which means also that nothing is required, except for this, as the old song says, all you need to know is your need of Him. And the fiducia asks you to give yourself to Him entirely. To say, I now live, as Paul says, not for myself, but I live from Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians? That I no longer live to myself, I live to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's fiducia. And do you hear that as the heart 
of real faith. That instead of living for yourself, all your ambitions, your dreams, the things that you think would make your life entirely complete, you give them to Jesus Christ. He pays what you owe to the holy God that we have sung about twice this morning. He gives you the righteousness you need. and He calls you to live after Him. This third contrast is meant to ask you that question, do you believe? Do you believe? You notice in verse 18 that in some ways Jesus seems to take back what He said in verse 17. He said, oh, the condemnation, the salvation, those are already determined. How are they determined? Or whether you believe in the Son of God whom Jesus has sent. If we're walking down the street and you were to find out I'm a pastor, it happens with some frequency, you might be surprised. I'm in a restaurant and I meet someone and they say, oh, so you're a pastor, what does that mean? And often there's a religious conversation that follows. Imagine you were to ask me as someone sitting in a restaurant, what does it mean to believe? What I would tell you is to believe is to give yourself to Jesus Christ. That's the essence of belief. Or as our confession and our catechism say, to rest and rely upon Him alone. Do you see that the three contrasts in our passage are meant to lead you to the point of asking that question this morning? The inside-outside is meant to tell you this message is for you. The salvation-condemnation contrast is meant to make sure you know the stakes are high. And the belief-unbelief contrast is meant to bring you to this point, do you believe? Some of you may be familiar with a movie that came out, I think, around 1980. Maybe there are parts of the movie I wouldn't commend, but it's become part of our cultural conversation If you're faced with a very difficult choice, sometimes people will say you are faced with Sophie's Choice. That's a reference to that movie in which a woman who has lived a fairly immoral life is sentenced because she's a Jew to Auschwitz during World War II. It's likely that she's going to die while she is there. At least that's the expectation of many who entered those horrible gates. But she doesn't go there by herself. She goes there with her two children as well, a young boy and a young girl, as I recall. And through a series of events, she is forced to make a choice. That's Sophie's choice. The choice that is placed before her is this. You have two children. You must choose which one to save and which one goes to the gas chamber because if you do not choose, both of them will be sent. That Sophie's choice has come to be representative culturally of a choice that you would rather not face, but you have to, and you have to make a choice lest something even worse occurs. This morning, what we're reading in this passage is not Sophie's choice. It is not a choice in which you are forced to determine something or something worse will happen. This is not a choice driven by fear. It is not a choice driven 
by how much you must do in order for something to be true. Now, this is a much better choice. It's a much better call. The call is this. The Savior who spoke to Nicodemus and uttered those words from John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus places that before Nicodemus as He does before you in order for those three contrasts to bring you to this critical question, will you believe? Because if you believe, it is salvation, not condemnation, for those who are both inside and outside. It is that belief that changes all the reality Let's pray. Father, we have we've perhaps heard John 3:16 so many times that for some of us we are dulled to its impact. We pray that would not be true this morning. For others of us, we have heard this for the first time or perhaps one of the few times we've heard it. And the importance of this truth now strikes us in a way we didn't expect. Father, you were at work in whatever way these words come into our hearts. And we are very grateful that your word, as the prophet says, does not go out and then do nothing, but rather it always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. We believe your word is sent to us that we would know Christ We would know His comfort. We would know His joy. And we're grateful that you brought us to this passage in order for that to be true this morning. Do your work in each one of our hearts. We pray in His holy name. Amen.